open up to John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. We're going to be talking about opposing kingdoms today as we continue on looking at the arrest of Jesus Christ and now his trials. We looked last week at the trial before the Jewish leaders and now they have brought him and handed him over to Pilate, a Roman official, so that Pilate can put him to death on a cross. I want to start with a a picture that I think will help us to understand the tension that's going on in this passage, and a tension I think we all face in our own lives. And so I want you to imagine a group of construction workers. I I know for some that's easier than others, as we've been nothing but construction workers, it feels like, around here lately. But imagine a group of construction workers, and they show up on a a site. And the site's been cleared, and, and... The earth has been kind of mounded around the edge of the site to clear it, make it nice and flat. And they have been given the instructions to build a building. They have their blueprints. And they are told by their foreman, everything you need is at the site. It's all there. Use what's at the site to build the building. Do it as quick as you can. So they show up and they see this mound of dirt all the way around the outside of what they consider the site. They can't see over that mound. And in the middle of this area that's been cleared, there's a few piles of gravel, sand, some more dirt. There's a few rusty old toolboxes with some hand tools in them. And and they start grumbling. Really? This is it? This is all we have to use? We've got to build this whole building. Well, we're going to do it. And so they get out the rusty old tools. If somebody finds a shovel, they begin mounding up dirt. Somebody realizes they put a little bit of water in it, kind of, sort of helps it to stick together. Somebody finds a little bit of rope laying in the ground and they use it to help tie things together. They find some old wooden branches, some sticks lying around. They start building it. After a while, they're getting pretty confident. Man, we're getting good at this. We've got this figured out. This building is starting to take shape. Of course, it really doesn't look a whole lot like the drawings because it's made out of sticks and mud and stone. The foreman shows up and he looks at what they're doing and he says, what in the world are you doing? They said, well, you said to use what's at the site to build the building and that's exactly what we're doing and we are doing a really good job of it. He said, what are you talking about? They said, well, this is all we found. There was a pile of dirt and a pile of gravel and and some, some sticks and some rusty old tools, so that's what we're using. He said, you have no idea what you're talking about. The site is much bigger. Just on the other side of that mound, there's a stack of, of metal that's supposed to be used for your beams. There's a whole bunch of really nice lumber. There's crate full of tools over there. They're just on the other side of those hills. The site is much bigger than just what you see. They look at him like he's crazy. What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. That's silly. We've got this all figured out. We've got our dirt and our stones and our sticks and our rusty old tools. That's all we need. And they refuse to listen to him. And they throw him out. Could you imagine? Just just settling for this is what we have. This is all we see. This is all that we need. I think maybe we couldn't imagine that when it comes to a construction site. But hopefully you see the parallel when it comes to our own lives. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. As these people that are interacting with Jesus Christ, they have this narrow view of what life is about. It's their kingdom. These are the boundaries of my kingdom, and this is what I have to work with. And here's this man, the Son of God, coming in from the outside and saying, 
There's so much more that you're not seeing. I've titled this Opposing Kingdoms. There are two kingdoms at work in this passage, and the concept of kingdom and Jesus Christ being a king comes up again and again. And these opposing kingdoms, on the one hand, there's our kingdom, the kingdom of humanity. This is what we see, what we know, what we believe we have control over. And then there's Christ's true kingdom. And we're going to watch as these two opposing kingdoms clash in this passage. So let's look at these two kingdoms in the passage, and we'll start with verses 28 through 40. Let me read this. You can read along, hopefully, in your Bible. Uh, If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew or in the chair or under the chair somewhere. Uh, Hopefully, you can share with those around you. John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. What is going on here? The first glimpse that we have here of this this man-made human kingdom that these people are trapped in, and frankly that so often we see ourselves as trapped in, we see this picture of the Jewish leaders in verses 28 through 31. And it starts with a false sense of their own righteousness, the thing that makes them righteous before God. Notice the absolute hypocrisy here. Here they are bringing Jesus to a Roman official, a Gentile. By Jewish law, if they were to go into this Gentile's home, they would be considered unclean for a period of time. Well, the next day is the Passover. And if they are unclean, ceremonially, religiously speaking, if they are unclean, they cannot partake or take part in the Passover. Well, that would be a shame. That would be embarrassing. Here, the leaders of of the Jewish people, the religious leaders, if they couldn't take part in the Passover, that would be incredibly embarrassing. So they want to avoid embarrassment because they are clean 
They are pure before God and they don't want to step foot in this man's house so that they can partake in the Passover. The irony of this is that the Passover was a celebration and a remembrance that the Israelites were trapped in Egypt, completely unable to save themselves, and God provided a way out. And he saved them, not through their own righteousness, but he saved them out of Egypt and delivered them. And they celebrated and remembered that moment in the Passover. Guess what the Passover points to? The whole concept of that moment in history and all future Passover celebrations pointed ahead to the time when God would save his people by sending the perfect Passover sacrifice to die in their place. They are so concerned about their own human man-made righteousness that they are willing to put the Lamb of God to death in order to preserve their own sense of righteousness. They also have an inflated sense of their own rightness, their own correctness, their own ability to see what's going on and know what is right and wrong and act accordingly. In verse 30, Pilate asks in verse 29, what charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30, if you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Do you know what the charges are? We say he's guilty. That should be good enough for you. That's all that matters. Now, in some of my studying, some of the scholars believe that it's probable that the Jewish, the Jewish leaders had already been speaking to Pilate prior to this, and that he was aware of the arrest, the arrest, and they had worked out what was going to happen. Because the Roman soldiers were with the Jewish leaders when they arrested Jesus. So it's possible they had already talked about this, worked it out in advance, but now they're handing him over to Pilate expecting him to say, yes, I will try him, and he is guilty. And he's going, okay, tell me, why, why are you here? And they're thinking, oh, wait a minute, we talked about this. This was all arranged, and they're sort of taken aback. But see, Pilate is in a unique position, a very difficult position. He needs to maintain his power. He needs to maintain his reputation. And here, these Jewish people are a threat to that. His decision about Jesus Christ could be a threat to that. If his Roman superiors hear about what's going on, that could be a threat. And so he is in a difficult situation. And yet John adds in verse 32, as the Jewish people say, we have no right to execute anyone at the end of 31... John helpfully adds, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. In John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And in John 12, 33, he said, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now that's fascinating. Because the Jewish people didn't kill people by putting them on a cross. The Jewish people put people to death by stoning them. They put them down into a pit and lobbed rocks at them. Only the Romans crucified. And so here, Jesus in advance is saying, I am in control of this. I know how this is going to take place. And there's this beautiful reminder in the midst of a very difficult and confusing situation. Jesus has been in control of this moment for eternity past. 
He knows exactly what he is doing. Now we see this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. As Pilate takes Jesus inside and talks to him and interviews him. And right away, we can see that these two are coming at this discussion from very different places. Verses 33 through 40, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is what the Jewish people had come. They said, he's setting himself up as a king. Now, we know from prior discussions, they were upset that he had spoken against the temple. He had claimed to be God. In their minds, that was Jewish blasphemy. This was a religious sin. It was a problem, and it was guilty of death. But see, the Romans didn't care about that. That was a Jewish issue. Romans had no problem with somebody claiming to be a god or a goddess or the son of a god or a goddess. They could worship anything. They really didn't care. So when the Jewish people hand Jesus over, they, they give a charge against him that is something that would cause the Romans to take notice. He claims to be a king. He's starting a revolution. He's trying to overthrow the Romans. Well, this was something Pilate had to take seriously. And so he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus right away gets to the heart of the matter. Pilate, where's this coming from? Where where are your ideas coming from? Are they really, truly your ideas? Pilate, what is it that you think? Are you just saying this because other people say this? Did others talk to you about me? See, Pilate's trying to live in his own kingdom and, and protect himself. He has to make sure, as the governor of this area, that there's no uprising among the Jewish people. It doesn't matter if the peace in the area is good and correct or not, as long as the people stay quiet. He has to make sure that the other Roman officials over him think that he's doing a good job. All he cares about is maintaining his position, his kingdom. So he asks Jesus, verse 35, Am I a Jew? He says, I'm not one of you. I'm not a part of this whole thing. Your people are blaming you for something and bringing them or bringing you to me. It's not my fault. I'm not a part of this. And notice how Jesus gets right to the heart of this. Jesus said, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, Pilate, we're not talking about the same thing here. You're worried about a threat to your livelihood, a threat to your power. I'm talking about an eternal kingdom that is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Remember, Peter Peter tried to do that, and Jesus said, quit it. You're not understanding what's going on here. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus' kingdom is not dependent on public opinion. Jesus is not here trying to overthrow some human government of the Roman Empire. That's tiny compared to what Jesus is accomplishing. They're not talking about the same things. But Pilate, like all of us, latches on to the one thing he understands. He's not really sure about the rest of this, but he understands something. Verse 37, you are a king then. Aha, I've got you. You said you're a king. And then Peter, or I'm sorry, Jesus, asks Pilate some more questions. You say that I am a king. You say that I am a king. Even in that statement, it's like he's saying, Pilate, what exactly do you mean by that? Have you really thought this through? 
In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You see, Jesus has come from beyond the mound of dirt around our little construction zone. He's come from beyond the edges of what we understand to be the kingdom. He's come from the outside to declare there is more than what we see. His kingdom is not of this world. If we go all the way back to John chapter 1, John has been setting this up from the very beginning. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says to Pilate, and frankly to each of us, every time we read about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, there is more to life than what you see. Your view is too small. And Jesus, as the Son of God, as God incarnate, taking on flesh, He has come into our kingdom to show us that there is more. To testify to the truth that there is so much more. At the end of verse 37, He says to Pilate, Everyone on the side of truth listens to Me. This has been a theme throughout the Gospel of John. There are those who will get it. There are those who are willing to accept that I am not as in control as I thought I was. That I don't know what I think I know. That there is more to life than what I see. And I am willing to listen to the voice that says, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, come into the world. But there's also an implied invitation here to Pilate. As he says... Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I think there's an implied question. Pilate, which side are you on? You're the judge here. You're the one that's supposed to be carrying out justice. You're supposed to be doing the right thing. Which side of this equation are you on? Are you on the side of truth? Or are you trapped in your own little kingdom? I think it's a question we all need to answer. I think it's a question we need to answer in our life, whether or not we're going to give our life to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But I also think it's a question we need to answer each and every day. Am I living in my own little kingdom as if I'm in control? Or do I believe the truth that there is an eternal kingdom? The kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I will live constantly and forever for Him. Whose side are we on? Look at Pilate's response. 
Pilate has no way of understanding what Jesus is saying. It doesn't fit his equation of what truth is. For him, truth is whatever gets him by in that moment to maintain his structure, his power, his authority, and his comfort. That's truth to Pilate. And frankly, that's truth to most people today. Whatever gets you by in that moment is true for you. And so Pilate answers with a question that I don't think he himself can even answer. What is truth? Again, notice the irony. The answer to Pilate's question is standing right in front of him. Truth begins with Jesus Christ. He's right there. If Pilate truly wanted to know what truth is, if he truly wanted to explore the extent and the beauty of truth, he has the Son of God right in front of him. But he can't do it. Because he's trapped in his own kingdom. Pilate is unable to accept Jesus' offer to believe in truth. Because he's already accepted his own little kingdom and defined his own little truth. Now look at the hypocrisy of this kingdom. Verses 38 through 40. Pilate goes back out to the Jewish people and he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now Pilate is a judge here. What does a judge do if he finds no basis of a charge against somebody that's accused? He has a responsibility and obligation to let the person go. That's what a judge does. What does Pilate do? Well, he doesn't do that. He tries to find another way. He says, it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And look at who they cry for. All of a sudden, and I'm guessing they had prepared this in advance in case this had happened, they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a what? An uprising. What was the accusation against Jesus Christ? That he was claiming to be a king. That he was trying to overthrow the Romans. What was Barabbas already found guilty of? He was trying to overthrow the Romans. Do you see the hypocrisy here? No, no, don't give us this guy that's not actually doing what we're claiming he's doing. Give us this guy that actually is doing what we're claiming he's doing. We would rather have the guilty guy than the innocent one. How often do we do that in our own little kingdom? We twist and we distort the truth so that it makes us feel better. We reimagine it, reinterpret it, change it so it fits in our own little kingdom. Now I want to look at the feeble efforts of this lesser kingdom because Pilate's not done yet. He's still stuck. He wants to, in some way, do the right thing because if he doesn't carry out justice, he could be in trouble from the Romans. But if he doesn't want what the Jewish people want, he's going to be in trouble from them and they could start an uprising which is going to get him in trouble with the Romans. He's in trouble either way. So what can he do? He tries to find a middle way. A way that is inside his kingdom and he can control how often do we do this? Oh, I've got this. I can figure this out. I can grab my little pile of dirt and sticks and rusty tools. I've got this. Watch what Pilate does. Then Pilate took Jesus, chapter 19, and had him flogged. 
The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Why does Pilate do what he does here? Notice that in this passage, before chapter 19, Pilate has not rendered a verdict. He hasn't come out and said he's guilty. In fact, just the opposite. He keeps coming out and saying, I find no basis for a charge against him. And yet he takes Jesus and has him flogged. Brutally beaten. There's a lot of discussion about different types of Roman floggings and whether this was the severe one or whether it was slightly uh, less severe. Truth is, whichever one it was, it was awful all the way around. It was horrible. The Roman flogging was meant to demean the individual, to strip them of their humanity, to make them appear as an animal, to embarrass them. And so Pilate does something that I believe he's hoping Maybe they'll change once they see that I have embarrassed this man. That I've put him on display as a public spectacle. Maybe they will relent and say, okay, that's good enough. Who's going to follow him now? So he has him beaten. Flogged. They would have used straps tied together. Possibly with bits of stone. Or even glass embedded in it stuck onto his back and ripped away. It was brutal. As if that wasn't enough, here he is, beaten and bloody. And the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and force it onto his head. They put on him what John calls a purple robe. Matthew says crimson. It was probably a very deep, dark red Roman cloak. Truth is, the soldiers couldn't afford a purple robe. It would have been massively expensive. But John is pointing out something here. They are mocking him as a king because only kings wore purple. So he gets to the heart of what they're trying to do. They are mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Think for a moment what Jesus could have done. If his kingdom was about maintaining his authority, maintaining his comfort, winning a battle in that moment, making sure that everybody looked upon him favorably, think about what the Son of God could have done in that moment. He could have struck them all dead. could have healed his wounds with a snap of his fingers. He could have taken away his shame and showed his glory in that moment with no effort at all. 
But Jesus wasn't about that kingdom. He had something greater to do. Because for us to be in his kingdom, somebody needs to die in our place. And that's what Jesus was all about. Pilate brings Jesus back out. He would have been a disgraceful and pitiful sight. I think Pilate's saying, look at what I've done. Isn't this good enough? Are you satisfied now? He finds, again he says, no basis for the charge against him. He's basically saying, I just beat an innocent man in the hopes that you will release him. And what do the people say? Crucify him. Crucify him. And then the Jewish leaders say something astonishing. We have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, Pilate is very nervous. This is a new accusation. This is not something they had brought before. And this is something that meant one thing to them and meant something very differently to him. You see, the Jewish, or I'm sorry, the Romans had a concept of sons and daughters of gods. That the gods had all sorts of children. And there were others that were favored by the gods. And you never knew when you might run into somebody that might have some sort of divine blood in them. And you better be very careful not to anger them because their dad or their mom of these Roman gods might get very mad at you. And you better be very, very careful. And so here, Pilate again has his own kingdom threatened. Let's look at the end of this passage, verses 8 through 16. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate's very nervous. I think he's beginning to get an understanding or at least a suspicion or a fear that possibly there's more going on than he understands. And so he wants to know, where do you come from? D.A. Carson writes, What answer, long or brief, 
Could Jesus have provided for the Roman prefect who is more interested in political maneuvering than in justice? Who displays superstitious fear but no remorse? Who, in the next verses, still struts on the stage of human power but is enslaved by the political threats of his frenzied opposition? What's Jesus supposed to say? He's talking about a different kingdom. A kingdom that Pilate cannot accept, refuses to accept or acknowledge. He's so trapped by his understanding of his teeny tiny kingdom that he can't see beyond it. And again, John has this ironic statement. Verse 10, Pilate says, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Really, Pilate? Are you kidding me? The Son of God and Creator of heaven and earth is standing before you. The Judge of all humanity through all eternity is standing before you. And you think in this moment you have power? Jesus points out, if there is any earthly power that Pilate's wielding in this moment, he only has it because God gave it to him. It's not his own. And he says, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. He says, the Jewish people are just using you. They're just using you to carry out their plans. They know what they're doing. In many ways, he's pointing out that Pilate is not in control at all. He's just a pawn. And Jesus sets him straight. Verse 12, Pilate is still trying to set Jesus free, but they keep on shouting. And again, they're appealing, they're manipulating him. If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. This is kind of the Roman equivalent of a little child saying to his brother, if you don't do what I like, I'm going to tell mom. They're saying to him, no, no, we'll tell Caesar. You're going to be in big trouble. You're not going to get away with this. Pilate is stuck. So he brings Jesus back out and he says to them, here is your king. And look at what they say at the end of verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. The chief priests of the nation of Israel, the people of God, that are in charge of keeping the temple, the very presence of the dwelling of God and the holiness of God, have just declared we have no other king than this awful, horrible man in charge of the Romans. We declare he is our king. The Jewish leadership has just committed absolute blasphemy. They have just said that any Messiah that God sends to us, we will reject, we accept the Roman king. They are doing the very thing that they are blaming Jesus for. And they want Jesus crucified so that they can go on about their own little lives. And Pilate fails in his role. He gives up. He knows this man is innocent, but he refuses to do anything about it. He has run out of options. And so he does what the coward does. He gives in. When we think of kingdoms doing battle, we might have a picture of armies lined up in a battlefield and clashing in the middle with steel or or bullets lobbing at each other and this great battle going on. 
But there are kingdoms in battle each and every day of our lives. Because every time the gospel is proclaimed or lived out and demonstrated, there is a clash of kingdoms in this world. Because the little kingdom of this world that we see and we think we have some little bit of control over is absolutely opposed to anybody from the outside saying, there is a God, He made all things, and He is sovereign over all things. Jesus said in John 18.37, everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. So I ask you today, Are we clinging to our own little kingdom? Are we so wrapped up in what we can see and think that we have complete control and authority over it just like Pilate did? Or can we open our eyes to the fact that the Son of God came into this world, showed us that there is more than we could ever imagine, and then died in our place on the cross so that we could be not trapped in this kingdom, but freed from it and live forever in His perfect, eternal kingdom. The Word of God is saying to us today, don't miss this. Don't miss what God came for. Don't miss why Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. The God of heaven and earth is calling to you today and saying, come, look at what I've done so that you can be a part of my kingdom. Say that Jesus Christ is your king and live in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are limited people with limited control over just a a limited part of this earth and this time. And yet so often in our fear and in our pride, in our own minds we inflate the picture of what we think we are in control of. We think we've got it. We think we've got it all together. That We think we can work it all out if we just try this or maybe this or a different way. If we can just get these people to like us, to see us in the proper way. And like Pilate, we are just grasping at anything to get by in that moment to get what we want. And the irony is that your son came into this world to set us free from that. But instead, so often, we see that as a threat to our own little freedom that isn't freedom at all. And I pray today that if there's anyone who has not accepted your Son as their Savior and King, may today be the day that they say, that's my King. The one who was beaten, humiliated, crucified and rose again. That's my king. And I want to be in his kingdom forever and ever. May they hear truth today and accept it. And by so doing, be set free forever. And may we all live in such a way that others see that truth, hear that truth through our words, see it in our lives and our actions. Every time we gather together for worship and fellowship, every time we go out into this world as missionaries carrying the gospel, may we be presenters of the truth 
of Jesus Christ so that others may see and drop to their knees and say, Jesus is my King. In whose name we pray, amen.